0: Hello, and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. This is a show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm Kevin, and in this episode, we'll be reviewing issue number two of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before we dive in, a spoiler warning. As usual, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this issue. This isn't a review so much as a recap and discussion. The issue will be discussed in detail, as well as characters, events and so on from both Mage the Hero Discovered and Hero Defined. If you haven't read this issue or past issues of Hero Denied and the other series, well, you may want to consider listening to this after you do. All right, let's do this. Let's start with the cover. Kevin Matchstick amid red billowing smoke and lightning. He's looking like he's about to land. Now, flying is not in Kevin Matchstick's skill set. You know, in fact, He's been notoriously afraid of heights in Hero Discovered and Hero Defined. But here, he is clearly coming down from a height, and he shows no fear, just determination. And a wide-eyed Hugo has his arms wrapped around his dad's neck. And someone on Facebook made a great observation that Hugo looks like a cape. And, you know, she just pegged it. I'm going to include a shot of the cover and a sketch by Matt with some cape action to illustrate the point. But really, this is just the kind of thing that usually goes right past me. So I love it when somebody notices these touches. Uh, Mystery Mage fan, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry I couldn't find the post to give you credit. You rock. But let's get back to that fear of heights that looks like it's just gone. And who has capes? Well superheroes have capes. Of course, the Pendragon has no cape. Heck, he doesn't even have a weapon anymore, per se. But maybe this is a subtle way of showing that Kevin Matchstick's kids, and by extension his family, are what really make him a superhero. So in the uh, story so far opening recap, Matt Wagner states that Kevin Matchstick can imbue anything he touches with the mystic power of Excalibur. So while the bat was destroyed, and yes, it was an amazing weapon, it was just a tool, a way for Kevin to express the power within him, the power of the Pendragon. And this issue opens with a continuation of Kevin and Magda's conversation that ended issue number one. And we get a sense of the very cautious lives that they lead using warding charms and the like to avert or avoid encounters with nasties or other supernatural entities. And it's specifically mentioned that Kevin would no longer draw Excalibur, and of course this is referring to drawing upon his power. Again, this does raise some questions about his mastery of the power and how it gets expressed. In issue one, We come in on a scene where Kevin is finishing telling Hugo the story of how he and Magda came to the city where they live before Hugo and his sister were born. And this and other references establish that they've been living here for about seven or maybe eight years. So in all that time up until now, has Kevin just not used his power? Now, there's also a possible double meaning here when they discussed that Kevin would not draw Excalibur. In a group chat held um, after Mage the Hero Defined wrapped up, Matt was asked about the demise of Kamiko, the comic company which first published both Mage and Grendel. And Matt replied that, quote, that's the bad exploding. Remember, when Kamiko filed for bankruptcy... I wasn't allowed to touch either Mage or Grendel for several years. Bleak times for me. So, for some time, he could not legally draw Excalibur. At least, certainly not without getting the attention of real-world nasties. Attorneys and the like. So, back to the storyline. Kevin makes it clear that this battle was unavoidable. These were no random nasties. They knew him by name. And Magda's comment here is a mirror of what Kevin said right after his battle with the Gruesome crew, or I think they're referred to as the Hob crew, in issue one. She says, I really liked it here. And if you recall, Kevin's first comment after that battle was to think about that how this would impact his wife as he sat down and he says, she really liked it here. Both seem to have come to the conclusion that they will have to move, but... Their conversation is stopped short as they realize that the kids are no longer watching TV, they're watching their parents. And they look uncertain and a bit frightened. And both of these panels are a real treat. The uh uh-oh looks from the parents, and the scared looks on the kids' faces. Because really, kids hear everything. They could be across the house with the TV blasting, playing a game with their friends, and if you happen to use the word cake in passing, perhaps maybe, uh, I don't know, this Styrofoam tastes like rice cake. Or, did you see that Olympic patty cake competition? Sure enough, the next thing you know, they're going to be right next to you, asking you what you were saying about cake, and could they have two servings extra frosting, please. Again, kids, hear everything. So, the parents quickly shift gears, go into damage control, reassuring the children, and really moving the household back into the normal flow of the evening events. And this is done in what I've come to think of as Matt Wagner's signature silhouette panel. These panels that started cropping up in Mage 2 showing tiny silhouettes of characters with only minor details called out or defined, usually an avatar's symbol like Kevin's lightning bolt or Kirby Hero's lion head shield. Issue 12 of Hero Defined had some great examples of this, and I'll look into posting a few to the As Mentioned in This Episode gallery after this is live. A, uh, a quick note about the backgrounds here. We just have these color washes, but instead of solid colored panels, Brennan Wagner's panels, his colors look like these wide brush strokes. And we even see the background colors changing as we go from Kevin and Magda talking to the panel where they realize the kids are watching. The color changes from a brownish taupey color to blue shades. But what's really cool is how the background area closest to Kevin and Magda's faces is really a light, bright blue, and it gets darker as you move to the edges of the panel. And between the changes in color and the brush stroke look, the background colors really provide the same kind of visual message or coding for shock or surprise. That you might typically get from a drawing, from drawing, you know, radiating lines out and away from a character in a panel. Those kinds of shock or astonishment lines that might come off of somebody's face. It's a neat effect. I'm not sure if it's intentional, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were. So Hugo and Kevin head to the kitchen to cook tacos, and there's an amusing moment where Kevin is teaching Hugo about cooking garlic and onions. And Matt Wagner does a fair bit of cooking himself. Uh, some time ago, he even published a cookbook. I believe it's called The Devil's Cookbook, I might be wrong. It's been ages, and it's almost impossible to even find a reference to it anywhere online. I'm sure it's out there, it just gets buried in the search results. I do have one panel from this, which I will put in the as-mentioned post at magetheherodescribed.com. Meanwhile... Magda and Miranda are having a touching moment where we get another display of Miranda's concern for her mom, her caring nature, even at such a young age. Now, a note about the kids. I can imagine that some people are not going to be into the family dynamic in this story. Superpowered dad, magical witch mom, and who knows what, if anything, the future holds power-wise for the kids. I can hear the comparisons to The Incredibles already, and some grousing, but the story is what it is great heroic destinies, epic battles, saving the world, and changing diapers. Well, I mean, maybe not changing diapers at this stage, but, but family, raising kids. Um, in the same internet chat that I referenced before, Matt made the following comment when the conversation turned to marriage, an offshoot from a question about Barbara Wagner as the inspiration for Magda. And as I'm sure anyone who's been married or a parent will agree, he said... Marriage is hard work. It's truly a heroic endeavor. But all great things come from tremendous effort. Ditto, parenthood. So, I mean, that's this story, folks, and I think it's going to be neat seeing how the hero has to thread the needle between destiny, heroics, and family. Buy the ticket, take the ride, no bottom limit to quality guaranteed, and no top specified. That's going to be the story. So Magda and Kevin get the kids to bed, Magda putting on a neat display of magic for Miranda, swirling stars, magically animated versions of those plastic glow-in-the-dark stick-ons people put on the ceilings of rooms to make it look like a starry night when the lights are turned off, and she blows this magical dust to, to set them swirling. And it reminded me of a little thing my wife and I have done with our daughters, spraying some lavender or similarly scented mist in a room to ward off bad dreams, or teachers who send sweet dreams for first day of school letters or poems with decorative magic confetti to place under a child's pillow the night before the first day of school to alleviate first day jitters for school. You know, that's that's it, folks. It's the, the everyday magic of heroic parents. Now, At this point, Kevin questions whether Magda's use of magic is a good idea. This seems to be, in part, a valid question, and partly a minor jab back in response to her early comments questioning about him risking their safety by drawing Excalibur when confronted by the nasties in the park. And she mentions how Miranda is sensitive, and the groundwork for her being emotionally sensitive has been laid, both in some panels at the close of issue one as well as in this issue. But, you know, sensitive has another meaning someone who responds to or senses occult influences, and she is the daughter of a witch, niece to two other witches. So I'm just making a mental note about Miranda's sensitivity for now and see if anything comes of that as we move forward. Meanwhile, Kevin checks in on Hugo and we get some nice touches for time and place an anamorphic book that he's reading a Harry Potter poster on the wall and then the parents make their way up to the attic and this attic scene I just broke out laughing at the sight of the magic crock crock pot I mean you really can't cook anything in a crock pot just what is bubbling in that modern cauldron I mean whatever it is is pure unadulterated green magic and before we can find out It's time to check in with the villains at their stronghold in Archeron Insurance. And this works as the villains' headquarters on so many levels. The original headquarters for the Umbra Sprite in Philadelphia was the Styx Casino. And frankly, during the 1980s, a casino in Philadelphia may have made sense for the story for dramatic purposes, but it also kind of said... This isn't happening in this world, in the real world. You know, Kevin's an everyday guy living in a typical city, but oh, there's this huge casino in the middle of a place where they aren't legal. I guess this doesn't take place in the real world after all. So you can kind of set the world where Mage takes place and Hero Discovered kind of aside, a little bit at an arm's distance. But this, this feels like our world. An insurance company makes sense. It fits into our world, just like the toys in Kevin and Magda's house, the TV shows Hugo watches, the Animorphs book, the Harry Potter poster. Anyway, the Sticks was a casino. Similarly, insurance companies are a gamble, a more legitimate version of the casino, and one whose stock and trade revolves specifically around misery and woe. Now, both names come from Greek mythology. The Styx is a famous or infamous river. It's the river of hate. The Archeron is the river of woe, or the river of pain, a fitting name for an insurance company. And in Greek mythology, the ferryman Charon ferries the dead across the Archeron to transport them from the upper to the lower world. At times, the Styx has been credited uh, incorrectly, I believe, as having this honor as well. Anyway. In The Hero Discovered, the Styx was a hotbed of mystical activity. Archeron insurance is likely to be the same. And look, I'm, I'm not saying that inside Archeron, you go down to go up. I'm not saying that this series is going to end in a big showdown at the villain's headquarters. But the first two series did. But the cyclical storytelling isn't everything. And Matt Wagner is notorious for going into the Mage series unplanned, unplotted. He's often referred to creating Mage as a zen journey. When talking about issue number 15 of Hero Defined, uh, he said, even the last chapter of this installment, which should have seemed like a denouement, was a matter of vital realization. I tried to plot out the conclusive issue of this series, but the plot wouldn't let me. So who knows? We might be able to guess at some things the future holds in this series based on the previous two. Of course, we might not. Now, inside the building, we see the evil pixie from issue one reporting to one of the Gracklethorns who just immediately eats it. And I had to laugh. This is a great play on the whole shoot-the-messenger trope. And it works as an effective shorthand to highlight how amoral and evil the Gracklethorns can be by by killing, by hell, eating a loyal subordinate. Now, maybe this is supposed to be specific character development for Sylvia? I, I guess we'll see. And the lettering here is cool, as the Dark Fairy is speaking in some runic language, and how it changes in shape and size as the evil minion lets out its final alarmed exclamation before being eaten. Now, as a side effect, of being a huge insurance agency, the Umbra Sprite has earthly resources at her, its beck and call. Adjusters haven't been able to locate a matchstick or Pendragon in the area of the sighting, so clearly he's living under another name, and can you blame the guy? The Umbra Sprite revels in the news that the Pendragon has a son, going on about how he has no idea the torments that await, which is a, uh, Which is a cynical take on parenthood that fits with the Umbra Sprite's M.O. But it's back to business as the Umbra Sprite sends two Gracks out to look for the Fisher King. Destroying the Fisher King, according to the Umbra Sprite, will usher in an age of eternal despair. And as they change, as they get ready to change, we see that they are, like their Grackle Flint siblings who preceded them, bald as well. They're wearing wigs and they have to change into human appearance to go into public. Now, we saw the Grackleflints do this occasionally in the casino, in Styx Casino, but we never saw how the uh, Grackleflints assumed human form. In this case, the Gracklethorns have to drink from the Dark Fountain. Now, in issue one, I had thought this was a painting, but it's not a painting, it's a fountain. And frankly, the black liquid looks very much like the Umbra Sprites form at the end of the Hero Defined. And upon drinking this, the thorns take on a human appearance. And... Apparently, the Ember Sprite is not a fan of uh, glassware, so the Thorns have to drink from the fountain directly, placing their faces into the black liquid to take a drink. And that at least gives us a reason for the Thorns undressing to the waist, the black liquid coming down their face, their neck, and chest. And typically, this could be used in some comics as an opportunity for titillation, but what we see is that despite their feminine garb, the grackle thorns appear to have no breasts. It's hard to tell from the flow of the black liquid whether this is something like a double mastectomy or just their natural or supernatural appearance. Uh, And in a story where parenthood looks like it will feature prominently... Removing the breasts, a symbol, an actual source of maternal nurturing, seems like another visual way to delineate between the forces of good and evil. You know, with other writers, if this is the case, I might think, you know, that this was just being done for aesthetic. But when thinking about some artistic decisions and choices Matt Wagner has made in the earlier Mage series, I I would be hard-pressed to think that this is just there with, with no thought behind it. And the transformation here doesn't look pleasant. Um, to to the point priorly mentioned regarding the grackle thorn anatomy, even when human, uh, clearly the thorns are female, uh, but not busty. And again, my examination here is largely driven by some comments in the Onion AV review that I discussed in podcast episode number four. And so examining the portrayal of female characters in Mage right now closely to to really double check, you know, my gut feelings that this is mage the hero denied, not mage the hero denied women their right through the power of objectification and the patriarchy, but uh, to each their own interpretation, I suppose. Now, that said, it might just be me, but there is some vaguely sexual connotation uh, to one Gracklethorne statement, uh, Alexia, I think, but maybe Sasha, when she says, I can't wait to blunt his weapon. Now, it isn't that far of a reach. In Mage 2, the bad Caliber is used at times to represent Kevin Matchstick's um, sexuality, if you will. There's uh, plenty of sexually coded imagery in that comic series, and there are some uh, letters that have caught that by readers that detail it, and, you know, Matt in his response zones up to it completely. I'll see if I can find uh, the letter in question and share that in the As Mentioned In section for this post as well. Uh, meanwhile, if you look back at Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, you can see mention of a man's blunt weapon, uh, in this case a fencer's foil, as implying his impotence. So maybe this is merely a statement of wanting to make his weapon, his power, well, powerless, impotent. But also, considering the seduction comment in issue number one, I wonder if there's something else going on here as well. Now, the Grackle Thorns names all seem to be somewhat Russian, Zofia, Sasha, Alexei, etc. The Greco-Flints, their names, Piet, Laszlo, Emil, were Latin, Roman, uh, Slavic, and in one case, Dutch. And from a certain point of view, these are all old world names. Uh, Maybe they're meant to be subliminally evocative of an old evil Anyway, the Umbra Sprite spends some time monologuing about the Fisher King, the embodiment of hope. And much like how their predecessors, the Grackleflints, had to frequent missions to homeless shelters and seek out crippled beggars, the Gracklethorns are set forth to find this, uh, what the Umbra Sprite calls repulsively humble king, whose sacrifice will usher in a new era of malice and misery— now, you know, Emile, the Grackle Flint, eventually encountered the Fisher King and Mage, the hero discovered, and he was really thrilled when that happened, but it didn't end too well for him. Somehow, I doubt that the Gracklethorns on their own would have a much better experience, so I, I wonder what the Umbra Sprite's actual plan is for the Fisher King, if they should happen to find and capture him, or her, as the case may be. Now, at this point we return to Kevin and Magda and we learn just what Magda's been cooking a protection potion that she began work on the day that she first learned she was pregnant with Hugo it takes a year to concoct and seven years to distill to full strength and it's just about ready so Hugo must be just about seven or eight years old at this time now Ultimately, this potion can be used to anoint the perimeter of their chosen home and make it impregnable, secure against any form of magic, establishing their home, their castle, their Camelot. But it's still not going to be ready for about a week, and evil is closing in on them. So the clock's really ticking here. And the fumes from the potion literally put stars in Kevin's eyes. This is the same visual device used to illustrate his enamorment with magda in hero defined he would think of her and literally get starry eyed and brennan wagner also uses a lot of purple on the skin tones and background here and sure it's a dark attic and the light is dim in their shadows but you know really purple was waliot's favorite color of magic you know the color of passion you know And the stars in his eyes and the resulting shenanigans are a nice way to show that he's still under her spell. The magic between them is alive and well. Meanwhile, Hugo is unable to sleep. He's staring, watching out the window of his room. And, you know, what he saw at the park obviously freaked him out. You know, like when you go through a traumatic event and then the pace of life, the ordinary pushes it away, you know, like going back home, having dinner, you know, the bedtime routine and all that. But then when everything gets quiet, then it returns. And, you know, poor kid, you really get a sense of his anxiety from this simple scene as frame after frame. You know, first we see him in his room peering out the window and then a close up on the window and then pulling away. And he just looks so very small peering out through that window. And we pick up the next morning. Kevin is getting ready to head out with Hugo. And Hugo's first question is really telling about that anxiety. When, you know, Matt tells him, or rather, when Kevin tells him, hey, we're heading on out, uh, he asks, that's not near the park, is it? And clearly this is an indirect question about what's on his mind. You get the idea that he doesn't want to go back to the park, back where he saw that what must have been for him a disturbing battle between his dad and the nasty crew. And one thing that that slipped past me when I first read this, and, and quite frankly, I'm not sure I really understand if this is a typo or I'm just being dense. Kevin asks Hugo if mom went out, and she's clearly not around the house. Hugo says, nope, in service, whatever that means. So I think this is a case of a kid just mishearing a word and maybe not knowing what the word was that his mom used. Uh, which we'll discuss a significant version of this in a moment. But it's a fairly literal response. He says she didn't go out, and you know what she's doing involves the word in. Uh, but, of course, the note from Magda makes it clear that she's out getting ingredients for the magic crock brew. So I'm not quite sure why he said nope, she's not out, when saying she's in service, whatever that means. Anyone who can clarify this for me? Or maybe it's something that will be cleared up in the next issue. Anyway, we follow Kevin and Hugo to Buster's Barbecue, where Hugo um, asks about another misheard word, asking his dad, what's Caliburn? And we get a laugh line here with Hugo clarifying Caliburn. I heard you and Mom arguing about it last night. Mom says you draw it, but Dad, you can't draw. Now, Kevin clarifies that the word is Excalibur, And it's just something your crazy old man used to do when he was younger. And in response to some gentle, you know, pushing from Hugo, he says that he can show him someday, maybe, when he's old enough. And Hugo's about as thrilled at this answer as any kid is when they're given the you're not old enough to do whatever answer. And they head to a card store where Hugo gets more cards uh, for the game that he likes to play. And, you know, what are they anyway? Magic? The Gathering? Pokemon? Um, might not be important at all, but they keep cropping up. And they're greeted by these two badass satyrs in kilts with huge mace-like weapons. I mean, I tell you, one thing reviewers and fans keep commenting on is Matt's nasty or monster designs. And these are two rude-talking, mean-looking nasties. Celtic-looking tattoos, kilts, belts made of human skulls, And did I mention the weapons are flaming? A flaming mace and spiked ball and chain. And they're saying some, you know, great movie-style dialogue stuff, like, you know, how Kevin is all dead and don't know it yet. Maybe they've been watching a lot of Tarantino. Now, Kevin gets, has Hugo get on his back and makes a huge leap, and then another, the, uh, both satyrs missing him with their weapons. And I really like how the colors here show you the motion with the blue-shaded figures representing the different stages of the leap, and finally a fully-colored Hugo and Kevin landing. And when they land, Kevin then takes the hubcaps off their car, and as he flares them up, you can see bolts, you know, lightning bolts like on his shirt, form on the hubcaps. And he faces off with the satyrs, lights them up with the power, um... And we get protective dad again, but this is really mega violent as he takes these two down with the hubcaps, telling him basically to never mess with his son. And he dispatches the second one you know, by using the hubcaps kind of like they're symbols and just smashing the nasties' head between the hubcaps, uh, all the while, you know, spouting off some slightly quippy commentary at the nasties. He's kind of like a really pissed off Spider-Man. Now, I don't know what would be more traumatic for Hugo, uh seeing the satyrs and being confronted by the, you know, weird supernatural threat they represent or the gory violence that his dad deals out in front of him. And uh and in the aftermath, the two smoldering nasties dissipating in front of them. In Kevin's hands still glowing with the energy of Excalibur, we get this great callback to their conversation at Buster's when Kevin says, that was drawing Excalibur. I guess you're old enough. And that's it. To be continued. And and what a ride! For a comic that took place mostly in a house and an office, there's a lot of forward motion. Um, still, this struck me as setting the table part two. And now we have a a really good sense of what's been going on with Kevin and Magda since Mage 2 ended, and the same is true of the Umber Sprite. We've really established the characters, their histories, their motivations, etc., at least to a fair degree. And I'm really looking forward to the next few issues to see how this develops. Now, some people in the past have mentioned that you can take each set of five comics from the 15-issue series for the Hero Discovered and Defined, and consider them each to be a chapter or distinct act in the story, mini-arcs, if you will. Now, I've never gone back to Hero Discovered or Defined to look at them specifically to test that theory, but if that's the case, issues you know, 1 through 5 will probably deal with establishing the story and setting everything in motion before we hit Act 2, where things get into high gear and we move from this setup and introduction into confrontation. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Mage, the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us next time, me next time, when I'll review issue number three. If you have any comments or thoughts about the podcast, about the issue we've discussed, or Mage in general, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find podcasts, reviews of Mage Comics, interviews with Matt, and more. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.